0: New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. Hey Adam. Did you hear today's all of government COVID-19 national response update? Really important stuff, of course, but they really have to address some pretty small things too. Sarah Stuart Black, who's terribly important official, civil defence emergency management director today, her advice to the nation included telling us: do not put your wet wipes down the toilet.
1: Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for
0: Tuesday, March the 31st. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. We bring you the latest news each day, as well as the quirky things about life under lockdown. Some news from
1: last night. It seems we've become a nation of snitches. Not that I've got any problem with this at all, but so many people went online to dob in their fellow countrymen and women for what they reckoned were lockdown breaches that the site crashed.
0: 4,000 responses. Still, it's not like everyone has turned into saints overnight. A coronavirus testing tent set up in East Auckland has been stolen. It was actually bolted into the ground.
1: Nice. Later today, more wicked deeds. We catch up with stuff investigative reporter Blair Ensor, who tells us what's happening to crime levels during the lockdown, with a particular focus on the drug trade. But first, what's happened today?
0: Jacinda Ardern says we need more testing to be able to tell the government what it needs to know about community transmission. There's capacity for 3,500 tests a day, but it needs to grow, she said. We simply aren't testing enough yet.
1: In numbers, there are 58 new cases of COVID-19, taking the total to 647. 74 people have recovered, 14 are in hospital, including two who are in intensive care.
0: The Defence Force has deployed 20 planners and other specialist staff to be part of the all-of-government response team and has a rapid response group of soldiers on a two-hour notice to move.
1: And in Australia, the government has decided New Zealanders who aren't full Australian citizens will be eligible for a new coronavirus jobkeeper wage subsidy.
0: Luke Malpass is Stuff's political editor. He's hunkered out in Sydney right now, but seeing as we're all telecommuters anyway, it hardly makes a difference, so... Seeing as you're over there, Luke, can you catch us up on the status of New Zealanders in Australia?
2: Uh, yeah, so status of New Zealanders here is pretty much unchanged, to be honest. Uh, you can't get Social Security benefits, such as the unemployment benefit, if you lose your job. But the new Australian wage subsidy, you, you will be able to get. It's the one that's played through your employer or to you if you're a sole trader, and you will be able to, you will be able to access that. Uh, And that is more or less in keeping with with a lot of other subsidies that you can get if you're a New Zealander living and working in Australia. So you you can access, say, childcare subsidies for your kid because you're clearly in work um, as opposed to the more traditional sort of what we call main benefits in New Zealand.
0: What's the vibe over there?
2: It's uh, a bit more relaxed uh, than I imagine it is in New Zealand at the moment. Um, There are some restrictions that are like level four. So for example, you shouldn't be going out of your house unless it's necessary and unless you can sort of show where it is you are going. However, childcare is still open, uh, and a lot of shops are still open. Uh, so it the Australian government is taking a bit of has taken a bit of a different uh, route and so far it looks like their numbers are leveling off somewhat.
0: Do Australians care about what we're up to over here in New Zealand?
2: Oh I think they'll probably Interested in the sense that you know everyone, everyone's interested in kind of what other countries are doing with COVID nineteen and how well and how successful it is. Uh, but apart from that, I wouldn't say there's any more um, there's any more interest with that. Although there have been some questions being asked about the Australian government about why there hasn't been a New Zealand style level four sort of total lockdown.
0: And how's that been playing out?
2: Uh, so that's been so that's been interesting. So the Australian government's sort of quietly been you know uh, sort of been putting it about that. Oh well, the reason that New Zealand has needed to go into it so early is because they didn't even have enough ICU units to deal with uh, the White Island volcano explosion. So it was going to be a total disaster if the virus got out of hand there. Now, in fact, that isn't true, but uh, <laughs> but that, that's that's very much what what sort of quietly been being being, being being briefed.
0: Interesting. So the, the inclusion of New Zealand and the JobKeeper wage subsidy is sort of the feeling over here that it's a diplomatic victory of sorts, but doesn't sound like relations are 100% back on track.
2: Well, I don't think it's so much got to... I, I... Firstly, I don't think the job keeper subsidy, I think that would have gone to all New Zealanders and other um, eligible visa holders anyway, because the purpose of it is to keep people in work and to keep the relationship between employees and their business. Uh, so I think it's half a million Kiwis in New Zealand or so. The government here, it's not in their interest for all of those people to to. Fall out of work. I mean, it, it wouldn't be workable, right? So I think the government's probably slightly taking credit for something that that isn't uh, necessarily all to do with them. I mean, as far as the other thing goes, I think the Australians, just any government, the New Zealand government, the Australian government, they want to politically put the best spin on what they are doing and the reasons why they are doing it. And Australia has taken a different approach and to go around telling people, well, New Zealand's in a different situation. It's fair enough in the same way that uh, Jacinda Irn and uh, you know says that gives the reasons why New. Zealand is taking the approach that it is taking. And I guess a few months down the track, we'll look back and decide whose approach was better.
0: Right. Thank you, Luke Malpass.
2: Terrific. Hey, thanks, guys.
1: So I was thinking, it's almost like, bear with me here, the world's like a great big document, and COVID-19 is this highlighter that someone's highlighting bits of, but they're doing it with their eyes shut. Or or actually, here's another one. The world's a stage, and COVID-19's like this spotlight being held by a, um, again, someone with their eyes shut. My point is this. Things are happening which are really quite ordinary and they are becoming very, very important all of a sudden. You've got this wedding in Wellington. You've got a bunch of people uh, who got infected on uh, March the 14th at this, this wedding. And now that the details are coming out, it appears that there was somebody who had the virus. She got drunk. She didn't know that she had it, by the way. Of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. She became drunk and needed assistance off the dance floor. Lots and lots of contact. I don't know how many people, but, you know, um, drunk people can seem quite heavy. So perhaps, you know, I can imagine one per limb. Earlier in the evening, she had kissed a man. These things happen at um, parties. Uh, He tested positive a few days later. And in one version of this story, I believe that he apparently may have kissed somebody else. Anyway, this is a very unremarkable set of of circumstances. People at a wedding drinking. Who knew? But suddenly it becomes incredibly important. Or, you know, like St. Patrick's Day, March 17th and and Matamata. This get-together becomes a, a cluster. You know, even a boring old trip to the supermarket becomes... Something rather more. It's like a potential node in a global network of contagion. My wife just got back from uh, the supermarket this morning. And um, just before we recorded this, she was starting the process of disinfecting boxes of cornflakes and so on. Anyway, I don't know if the world needed my highlighter analogy, but it's just something that was going through my head.
0: Lockdown day six, or is it 16, 26, 46? 106. Yeah, who knows? Many people are stuck inside at home and having to deal with stuff they wouldn't normally have to deal with, Adam, you were under your house last night? I
1: was under my house last night. I had my own reason to start thinking very carefully about what defines an essential service because our kitchen sink and, in fact, both pipes from the kitchen sink, from the waste disposal unit and from the kitchen sink, became utterly blocked. Night before last, I started putting down the Drano crystals and they bubbled out and put sodium hydroxide everywhere and that didn't work. And then the next morning I got a little snake and shoved it down the pipe. That didn't work. So my wife, by this point, was starting to lose faith in my DIY abilities and was Googling plumbers. But also she's Googling the COVID-19 government page. You know, are you allowed to call a plumber? Is that essential? Shouldn't they be out there, I don't know, looking at the drain traps in an ICU or something rather than dealing with people who've just got too much minced carrot in their bloody pipes. Anyway, good news is I discovered that the pipes under our house are quite accessible, and so last night... Gloved up, I crawled around, getting dusty and spidery. Found a thing that you unscrew, I didn't know they had these, but anyway, you unscrew a what's it in this kind of expulsion of, of vomitous, smelly stuff, complete with minced carrot, you know, because the waste disposal came out. And I shoved a thing up the pipe and I got the garden hose. Anyway, good news is, water leaves our sink now in the regular fashion, and I still don't know... What the deal is with calling out plumbers with you're allowed to. But at least we didn't burst some plumber's bubble.
0: Exciting stuff. Some people are a bit bored, frankly, at home. They're not getting to do exciting things, but they're coming up with innovative ways of whiling away time. We've got this former colleague and friend Jeff McTanch who's now a he's a former T V three colleague, I should say, who's now a broadcaster for Sky TV. Uh, he's taken to doing some very funny commentaries of events, very mundane events going on outside his window in the style of a sports commentator. Oliver, good morning from Eden Terrace, Basque Park, day one. And uh, as you can see, conditions absolutely atrocious. Someone out for a walk, CrossFit dude in the park, a car which is stored outside. They're very funny. You can catch them via his Twitter handle at Jeff with a J underscore McTainch.
1: They're saying around four weeks before we could get any action. Boredom is sometimes a dangerous force. There can be very unexpected outcomes when people try to fill in their time. Um, (laughs) So there's this piece from The Guardian about an Australian astrophysicist. An Australian astrophysicist has been admitted to hospital after getting four magnets stuck up his nose in an attempt to invent a device that stops people touching their faces during the coronavirus outbreak. So this guy's name is Daniel Reardon. He, you know, you've got to think that he's fairly clever. He studies pulsars and gravitational waves, and those are complicated things. But he was building, uh, he, he did admit that he doesn't know much about electronics. And indeed, I don't know if he knows much about magnets. But he was trying to build a necklace that would sound an alarm on facial Contact, he said to the Guardian. I thought that if I built a circuit that could detect the magnetic field and we wore magnets on our wrists, then it could set off an alarm if you brought it too close to your face. Makes sense. A bit of boredom in isolation made me think of that. So there you go, the danger of boredom. Anyway, he realized quickly that he'd completely got it back to front and he said, I accidentally invented a necklace that buzzes continuously unless you move your hand close to your face. So he's. He- <laughs> He's invented a virus accelerator, so that's good. And then, frankly, he obviously just sort of lost heart somewhat and just started playing with the magnets, seeing if they'd stick together through the width of his nostril. So he'd have, like, one inside his nostril, one side out his nostril-like earrings. Long story short, he got four powerful neodymium magnets stuck up his nose and had to go to hospital.
0: He reckoned that he would have been able to pull them back out magnetically, but the problem was, and I quote, At this point, I ran out of magnets. Not sure what the moral of the story is, actually. The moral could be, always have more magnets. I suppose, maybe. There is some really fascinating science being done at the moment. Some of it's almost like detective work. Researchers from the University of Hong Kong have been studying the origins of the COVID-19 outbreak. Bats remain the most likely original source, but they've been looking for what's called the middleman that passed it to humans. There has been a bit of a suspicion about pangolins, of course, which are those how you describe them sort of shell-backed mammals. They're a bit, bit armadillo-ish,
1: eh? They're like like stretchy, stretched armadillos, mm-hmm, but like they're that.
0: mammals and they're they're often illegally smuggled as sources of traditional medicine and food. It's been impossible to say for sure that they were the co- you know that they were the middleman because the markets the market, sorry, linked to the early cases in Wuhan was shut down and cleared out so quickly early on that there was no way any scientist could get in there and do a bit of Science. on the hunt
1: for, for pangolin zero, I guess.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So what these researchers did was they analysed 18 pangolins seized during an anti-smuggling operation in southern China. Right. And they detected viruses related to the one responsible for the COVID-19 in five of them. So their hypothesis, you know, it seems to stand up that pangolins are the middleman. And they, you know, they can't say that for sure yet. Nobody can. But they strongly recommend that pangolins should be removed from wet markets to reduce the risk of future transmission to humans.
1: Today, in our regular Famous People Infection news, Cardinal Angelo de Donatus has got it.
0: He's Pope Francis's vicar for the Archdiocese of Rome, so of all the Catholics with COVID-19, he's currently the highest ranking. I don't know if that's a, something you want to aspire to. For your plague plague playlist, Adam, let me bring you something special today.
1: Oh, why can't I go to Nana's place? This is delightful. Who is the composer of this
0: masterpiece? Why? It's the Wiggles, of course. they produced a song to help explain to toddlers why they can't go to Nana's house and why they should wash their hands. Why do we have to wash our hands? You know that everything's going to be okay when the Wiggles are on song.
1: Blair Ensor is a stuff investigative reporter based in Christchurch. I reckon he might have been listening to this podcast and heard our continuing plea for information about the future of New Zealand's hard-working tinny houses, because uh, he's sort of gone and looked into just that. So so Blair, what's happening to New Zealand's drug trade during the big lockdown of
3: 2020? Uh, look, yeah, tinny houses were, were and are quite prevalent here in Christchurch. I think Manchester Street used to be known as the location for tinny houses, but... I can't tell you a huge amount about that sort of space, particularly. like I haven't visited any tinny houses re- recently, nor have I done so <laughs> under lockdown conditions. Um, but you, we've, we've spoken to a number of people probably in the last week or so just to see how things are trending in that drug space. Um, and it, I think we're in for some, some challenging times for the, uh, the average user in New Zealand. Um, it's not just going to be as easy as popping down the road to your local tinny house anymore. Um, so we we have spoken to some sources who suggest that car parks could be the new tinny house, uh, oh. particularly supermarkets, uh, supermarket car parks where large numbers of people gather um, because, you know, the, the Joe Blow uh, drug dealer doesn't want to stand out in the crowd um, and will want to blend in. Um, and likewise, I, I, I think... Um, People would say that drug dealers do a lot of drop-offs around the place, um, but after dark now, I think police officers will be pulling a lot of those vehicles over. Well, they, they're they certainly saying they're going to be. Um, and so the suggestion is that many will take to their bikes during the day to blend in with uh, people who are out exercising.
1: Uh, so we're going to move away from the the car-based drug drop-offs to, to people getting... A dealer will be getting their Lycra on... Um, loading up the little fanny pack and um, heading out for, a, for for a day's drug dealing.
3: That could well be the case, yeah. Yeah, but look, I, I guess it's really early days, so it's a bit hard to tell. And I, 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 none of my contacts have really come across any, any specific examples, but that's what they're predicting.
1: One of the big things with this lockdown is that our borders are closed-ish, and precursors for meth and so on have tended to come in all sorts of ways, but certainly quite a lot of it coming in on aeroplanes. So what's going to happen to the, the pee scene in New Zealand?
3: Uh, well, I, I guess you could probably apply this pretty universally to all sorts of drugs like MDMA, cocaine, um, but obviously methamphetamine is the one that everyone talks about here in New Zealand because you know, there seems to be a fairly large appetite for that drug in certain sectors of society. At the borders, you would often have people bring it in. They they would call them mules. They might hide it internally uh, or in their luggage or whatever else. But uh, obviously the supply chain there is a little bit limited with the number of flights coming into New Zealand. Um, But uh, if you speak to experts, a large amount of our drugs come into New Zealand via container ships, uh, probably more so than via the... um, via people coming in on planes so i think a lot of focus is going to shift to that space but we're talking quite long term um you know it doesn't it's not overnight that you just suddenly have a container ship turn up in new zealand you can't just chuck them on in south america and expect them to be there the next day so we're probably talking weeks months before those sorts of things start to arrive at the borders and instead uh the thoughts are that perhaps we'll see a return to um, the late 2000s where there was quite a lot of meth being um, produced locally in New Zealand mm-hmm. uh, using uh, precursors that were being shipped in from China. Now, that option obviously isn't available, so they're going to need to look elsewhere for precursors. Um, but you know, I think people are certainly saying that, that uh, supply or the amount of drugs available is going to drop, which is going to see quite a significant price increase for things like methamphetamine. So that's the world of
1: drugs. What about crime in general? You've been looking into what's, what's going up, what's going down, haven't you?
3: So I've been talking to a few contacts um, who... Um, so we'll start with family violence, right? So here in Christchurch um, and across the country, New Zealand has a, a big issue with family violence. You know, international modelling would suggest that for an event like this, we could see as much as a 50% increase in family harm. You've got people um, living together... You've got victims or who are who are isolated. Uh, there's that financial stress, um, people just getting sick of being around one another. If your relationship isn't particularly robust, it's going to be put to the test. There, there are obviously predictions that family harm is going to increase. And, and over the weekend here in Canterbury, uh, there was quite a big increase. So in the 24 hours to 7 a.m. Sunday, there were 74 family harm related events, mm-hmm. as police like to call them. And usually they'd have about thirty in a twenty-four hour period, and uh, and in the preceding twenty-four hours there were forty-two events. So not as high as that one to Sunday morning, but still pretty high. Uh, And I think the one they were talking about from that to that seven a.m. Sunday was a record, as well. Certainly amongst the highest they've ever seen in Canterbury.
1: Surely other crime must be going down. I was just thinking no one has to worry about whether they're locking their doors at the moment because everyone is home 24-7. There there can't be any residential burglaries going on
3: right now, surely. Very, very, very few. So normally there'd be 40 to 45 burglaries or cars broken into driveways uh, in Christchurch overnight. Um, And overnight Sunday, there were only three. So, you know, that's a pretty radical drop. And it's the same for other things as well, like uh, car crashes, Uh, or any traffic related incidents very very few of those there's very few cars out on the road Um, very little disorder uh, not a great deal like very few assaults you know you think about you know you're out on the the booze on k road on a saturday night or um down the strip here in christchurch and you know you get all these people coming together and there's all this tension and booze fuel rage and people get assaulted left right and center well it's just none of that now you know everything is confined to the house Unless there's going to be people teeing off at supermarkets uh, over access and things like that, so it's 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 a weird landscape. And and when it comes to burglaries, people you know the thing the police are most concerned about are you know supermarkets, chemists, liquor stores, things like that, where there are these goods that people really want or need, and that you know when the financial pressure really comes on, they they're going to swing out there and start breaking into those. So they're pouring a lot of resource into. You know, just making sure that there's police around the place and, and keeping an eye on those essential services. How are the police adapting to this new world,
0: Blair? Because the routines that they would normally have, the, the patrols that they usually make and so on, they've had to throw everything out the window, really.
3: Yeah, I was talking to a detective working in volume crime this morning who was drinking uh, a coffee and sounded really, really relaxed. So he would normally be looking at all the burglaries from over the weekend but obviously there weren't many of those so he was going to hit the streets and do some patrolling. And they are having to shift resources into other spaces like family violence. Right. Um, and and just you know generally being out and about and stopping cars after dark and they've, yeah I, there was there was quite a lot of planning done uh, weeks 10 days ago looking at what the international research was and where resources was going to need to be but I guess they until it all happens they just sort of watching as it slowly plays out what about homicides you had some
0: figures around that
3: so uh i I am part of a project team called the homicide report and so we've uh, mapped all homicide new zealand over a 16 year period so i looked at uh homicides for march last year so there were eight homicides plus the terror attack and so far in march this year there have been three and the last of those was nearly three weeks ago on march 10 so Everything is just dropped off a cliff. What will become really interesting over the next weeks, ten days, so I think, is that family violence space, um, and just as the pressure really comes on, I, I kind of feel like we might be in a little bit of a honeymoon phase still. You know, people are adjusting to it.
0: The h- horrific truth is that homicides are very closely linked linked to domestic violence in, in our country.
3: Absolutely, you know, and fifty percent of um, of women are killed by an intimate partner or partner. Um, mm. So it's, yeah, th- that, that's the big area of concern. And look, I'll, 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 an anecdote from the weekend. So uh, my partner screamed on several occasions quite loudly outside. And, you know, I was like, what the hell is going on? And I thought our cat had been killed or something like that. It was it was like pretty blood curdling. And I went outside and we've got these large grapes that sort of string across a pergola out the front on, it, on our deck. And we've got a bit of a rat problem at the moment. So I fastened some rat traps to the, uh, to the grapevine and she had walked under it and this rat was just staring at her and it had been, you know, trapped. It was well dead. But anyway, I, I went out there and I'm like, what the hell is going on? Here's this rat. And I sort of laughed out loud. I was like, man, the neighbor's going to be wondering what the hell is going on at our place. Cause it was full noise. And my daughter was crying and, and I thought, well, it's just a matter of time until the police knock on our door. But anyway, the neighbour stuck their head over the fence and was like, is everything okay over here? And I was like, yeah, just this rat. But, you know, it was quite encouraging to right. see. And I think that's that's kind of what police are really hoping is that people are going to check in on their neighbours if they hear anything that doesn't sound quite right.
0: Yeah. Very good. All right, well, thank you for joining us, Blair. I'm disappointed you haven't got to the bottom of our tinny house obsession, but hopefully next time you come back on the show, you can keep us up to date on whether tinny houses are an essential service or not.
3: Give Jason call. <laughs> You're going to have to explain that. <laughs> Do you not remember the show from years ago that you had a segment on TV called Jason's Tinny House? I did too. That's yeah, right. Yeah, well, he... He might be able ah, to shed some
0: light. True. It. Okay. All right. Thanks for the tip. Cheers, Blair.
1: That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Tuesday, the 31st of March. I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Luke Melpass, Blair Ensor, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen, and Carol Hirschfeld.
0: We have a shiny new email address that you can get in touch with us viruspod at stuff.co.nz. You can find us on the stuff website, stuff.co.nz, and all the podcast apps. Go and subscribe.
1: Auf Wiedersehen.